I still haven't decided whether this was a good idea or not, but uh, this week I immersed myself in Lakeville, Minnesota's local uproar. It's probably the most scandalous and newsworthy uh, thing to happen to this uh, sleepy little town. But what happened was that there was uh, the baby crawlathon was mired in controversy. Uh, this year, it was uh, a 10-month-old by the name of Berkeley Bailey who was stripped of her trophy for having seemingly been the first one to cross the uh, finish line. Uh, at first, it seemed like it would be a, a win for female empowerment. The, the girl had clearly been the fastest one until the judges ruled that her crawling was, in fact, illegal. It, it appears that her form was somewhat irregular. Her form involved pulling herself forward on her left side with her right arm straight up in the air and somehow dragging the rest of her body along with her. And the judges said, that's not crawling. Uh, you're a speedster, not a crawler, and her, her form was disqualified. She was stripped of her trophy. Well, you can imagine what ensued. The mother... Uh, went to Little Berkeley's defense, and uh, she, she appealed to the judges, saying that this is the only form of crawling that she's ever known in her 10 months of life. She even uh, pulled in the doctor's recommendation here, saying that the doctor had, in fact, confirmed that this was crawling and that what she was doing was entirely normal. It just wasn't normal enough to qualify for the Lakeville, Minnesota baby crawlathon. I read one article and then another and another and another, hoping, hoping that it was all a joke and disappointed to find out that it was all terribly, terribly true. I, I read and I came to the end of my reading uh, somewhat uh, with, with strange thoughts about the world that we live in and the parenting challenges that are before us. And I, I wondered whether this baby crawlathon was a metaphor for parenting today. Parenting can be overwhelming and stressful and exhausting. And, and sometimes I fear that in all of our uh, stress and, and, uh, and fatigue, that we can find ourselves a little bit like those uh, parents in Lakeville, Minnesota, fighting very hard and making great sacrifices and appeals to win a race that really doesn't matter. Find ourselves sacrificing for perhaps the wrong race. And, and I, I, I say that because we have been in a, in a series on prayer and we're today looking at a prayer for parents. And, and we're praying not particular. We're, we're praying... Uh, with a recognition that if you have children, you probably already pray for your, for your children. But the scripture reminds us that it is us as parents that need prayer at least as much as, as our children. We need help to see life through his eyes, to bring God's help, his character, his priorities to this task that we've been given. 
Uh, today we're going to look at uh, the prayer of a man named Manoah. Uh, you, you may not have ever heard of Manoah, but you've probably heard of his more famous son, Samson. And as we look at him today, I want to encourage you to, uh, I want to, encourage you to pray for your role as a parent. Uh, this is a prayer that is for all of us in one sense, because in the family of God, we believe that all of the children that God has entrusted to us as a church are our responsibility. We all feel a measure of, uh, of responsibility for those whom God has given to us, and we want to be faithful, and we want to call upon God for his help, help in do, doing that. So whether you have your own children or not, I want to encourage you to pray for this task that God has given us, and want to encourage you to learn with me from, uh, from Manoah's prayer. So if, if you turn to Judges chapter 13, I'm going to read from uh, verses 1 to 8. On, in your pew Bibles, it's in the rack in front of you. It's on page 199. And uh, Together we will look at this uh, uh, prayer of Manoah uh, and to look at it against the backdrop of his son's life, Samson. Judges chapter 13, verses 1 to 8. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful. And drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel, the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then... Drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. This is the word of God. Now this morning I want to give you three reasons to encourage you to Pray for yourself as a parent and not just for your children. The first is to pray for your parenting because your wisdom isn't enough. We find ourselves in a very similar setting that Manoah found himself, where we are unprepared to equip our children for the temptations that will come. Often we enter into parenting feeling overwhelmed just at some of the basics, but we do so often unaware of all that will come, the challenges, the temptations, the stresses that will be involved. And we underestimate the spiritual dimension of that task. So we need to pray for our parenting because our wisdom isn't enough. Now, Samson's father, Manoah, lived at a time where 
maybe it's, many of the details were different, but the spiritual climate, the spiritual temperature in his day was very similar to our own. Verse 1 says, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, if you'd have talked to them, they could have justified the different things that they were doing. They didn't seem very evil to them. In fact, they seemed very common because everyone around them was doing them. But it wasn't, the, the statement wasn't that it was evil in their eyes. It was that it was evil in God's eyes. How God saw their actions. In response, God does what he usually does in Scripture when we reject his rule in our lives. He gives them another ruler. They, they reject his kingship. He says, okay, I'll give you another king. In this case, it was the Philistines ruling over them. In Manoah's, in Manoah's day, they oppressed Israel, it says, for 40 years. That's the longest period of oppression mentioned in the book of Judges. And, and, Judah, and, and Samson is the 12th judge in the book. So we have just seen cycle upon cycle upon cycle. And each of those cycles has followed a very predictable pattern. The people do evil in the eyes of the Lord. He gives them over to, uh, to uh, an, another ruler, to the uh, uh, oppression of another people. They feel the... the the stress of that, they feel the pain of that, and they cry out to the Lord, please deliver us. And he raises up a judge, a deliverer to set them free. We've seen that pattern 11 times now in the book of Judges. We come to this final judge, and the beginning of the pattern seems to, to, to match. We see, we see that they are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. We see the Lord giving them over to the Philistines, only this time... Nobody cries out for help. They have become so used to and so complacent with the, the way things are, they don't even bother to ask God to change them. They're just resigned that this is the way it'll probably always be. In fact, when God does raise up a Samson, he, he does raise up a deliverer for them. He skips that step where they actually cry out to help, and he raises up a deliverer anyway. When God does that, and he actually secures a victory where he brings uh, a, a defeat to, uh, upon the Philistines, those Philistines actually come to Samson, rebuke him, arrest him, and bring him to the Philistines themselves. They have become so used to the rule that it just feels normal to them. Now, today, God doesn't usually hand us over to the Philistines. That's not the way he responds to our, our sin. But he does uh, respond in a similar way in that when we reject his authority in our lives, he gives us over to our own sinful thoughts. Romans 1.28 describes it like this. It says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. God will let us have our own way if we reject him. He, 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 does not, he does not force himself upon us. If we want to reject his plan and his purposes, he will freely give us over to what we want. But our moral compass is warped in the process. We don't see sin as sin anymore. We lose the, 
the line and becomes blurred between right and wrong, between wisdom and foolishness. We struggle to tell the difference between what's eternally significant and what's temporally pleasurable. And so we excitedly enroll our children in baby crawlathons and think that we're making a difference, thinking that we've done something important. And, and this, was, this was what was happening in Manoah's day, and it's a problem for us as well. For Manoah and his wife, they had been barren and unable to have children. It had, it had brought, brought great disappointment and shame in their lives. But when the angel of the Lord announced that they would have a son in verse 3, notice the very next thing he said to them was, not, boy, this is great news, you should celebrate. He says, therefore, be careful. This event, which would naturally be a, a cause for rejoicing, was if they were not careful, if they were not giving themselves to this with a proper attention, it could be a cause for great heartache. The warning is loaded with urgency, knowing what we know of Samson's later life. Instructions are given that Samson is to be uniquely dedicated to the Lord, and there's some instructions about this Nazarite vow. He says he is going to be a Nazarite, and earlier in Scripture we have uh, descriptions of what that was. There were three things that were required of a, of a Nazarite vow. One was no alcohol. The other was uh, that you were to, uh, not, to uh, uh, not, not touch any, any dead corpse or anything related to, to the dead or the grave. And the final was you weren't to cut your hair. Usually this was a temporary vow. It was a way of expressing your, your complete dedication to the Lord. You're giving yourself to him. And, and it was temporary, it was for a short time, and it was voluntary. With Samson's case, it was from birth, and, and if you see the instructions to his mother here, even before birth, uh, to his death. It, it was to be a lifelong commitment that this person was going to be uniquely set apart for God given over in dedication and consecration to him. But it's curious the way the angel of the Lord describes the vow, because in verse 4, after saying not to drink alcohol, she ad he adds, and eat nothing unclean. That's a curious thing to add, because that wasn't actually part of the Nazarite vow. And in fact, it was basic to every faithful Jew. It, 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 to... to to tell her at this point, and don't forget to be kosher, was, was like to give something that was very basic, very foundational. And yet what has happened is that the people of the land have become so complacent in their faith and so lax in their commitment to God's law that those things that should be just basic ABCs of God's will for them under the old covenant aren't basic anymore. They, they, they aren't obvious anymore. And so when the angel adds this, and by the way, don't eat anything unclean, it's like him saying, and, and by the way, make sure that you don't murder or lie, with the implication this might be new information to them. And you get a picture of how, uh, just how far they had come as a culture. Frankly, I think the same is true of us today. 
The stakes of parenting are higher than ever, and yet often parents meet those greater, more urgent challenges with less urgency rather than more. And even some of the, the just the foundation, the ABCs of parenting, or at least according to the scriptures, are often neglected. Or, or they get lost in other priorities and other things that, that come as, uh, as distractions. ABCs of, of parenting in the scriptures? Hey, put, put God first in your family. Have no other gods before you. Have, have him at the center. Have him as supreme. ABCs of parenting in the scriptures? The gospel. Nothing is more foundational to the scriptures than the gospel. It runs from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation. Does the gospel shape, influence, and, and determine how you raise your children? Does it shape your, your, your entire family? ABCs of parenting in scripture. Uh, do you practice biblical discipline? The Bible says anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And God gives us biblical discipline instead. He, he calls us to consequences. He, he calls us to uh, e expressing biblical discipline. Is that foundational to your parenting? Another ABCs of, of parenting is biblical instruction. Do you teach the Bible to your children re regularly and consistently? Do they hear you reading and explaining the words of God, talking about what God has said, that it might take root at a deep and a personal level? These, were, these work and these are just the basics. This is the ABCs. This is our foundation, and yet... At least in Manoah's day, they had to be reminded of some of the basics, some of the, that foundation. And those foundations are given to us again today. And we often leave them on the shelf. And we leave them there for two reasons. One, sometimes just we don't know them. Uh, sometimes because we just, they don't seem so important to us. And other times just because they seem so hard. Just because they're foundational doesn't mean that they're Simple. And so we need to pray about our parenting. We need to pray about this task that we have been given because we want to see that task through God's eyes. And so I give you Manoah's prayer in verse 8. He says, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we're to do with the child who will be born. He's not praying, notice, to, for his kids to be the fastest or the smartest or the strongest. He's praying that God will show him how to be a godly parent, how to put God first in this task and equip his child for the spiritual and moral challenges that will surely come. It's a prayer I believe we need to pray with humility, a prayer that we need to pray with urgency. We need to pray for our role as parents because our wisdom isn't enough. I also believe we need to pray prayers like this because our children's success isn't enough. Samson, as we will learn, and as you probably know, he was strong physically, but he was very weak morally. 
He was a professional success until he was a spiritual train wreck. And that's what makes his life such a warning to us. We need to pray for our parenting because our child's success isn't enough. Now in Judges 13, 24, it says, And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him. Now it's unusual at this time, uh, in this period of history, that the mother named her son and not the father. It was usually the other way around. And it may be an indication to us here that apart from praying a great prayer in verse 8, Manoah wasn't all that engaged. He may not have been all that involved in parenting his son. That may be what we're learning from this little note that his mother named him Samson. Regardless, you can feel his mother's hope for her son's future. She names him Samson, which means sunshine. It means like the sun. And you can imagine that at a time when Israel was facing such difficulty and oppression, that this little child, after having been barren as a couple, this miracle child, blessed by God, called by God, he was light to his mother's world. He was sunshine to her. And you can see the, the, the sense of hope and expectation. Like she has met an angel that, that has set apart this, this child as special. He's going to bring the deliverance for Israel. He, it's going to begin with him. And you can, you can imagine the hope that she felt. Named him sunshine. But a bright future is a dangerous thing to put your trust in. Putting your trust in a child for your brightness, for the light to your world is a dangerous thing to do. Samson's strength is legendary, and he was, by all standards of the day, extremely successful. Uh, You may not think of him in those terms, but when uh, we, we might call a child successful if they became very famous or they were very... accomplished academically or professionally, that you would look at their their income or a particular job. But when you are traveling back in time to to Manoah's day, this is a warrior culture where strength is everything. And Samson was about as strong as they came. He he was successful in, 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 in many respects. In one incident, he took on 30 men by himself. In another, in another instant, he, he famously took uh, the jawbone of a donkey and took, out, took on a thousand-man uh, army and defeated them. He was successful, to, successful to the point that he could have been a great general. He could have been a great king. But he was morally undisciplined and spiritually complacent. And so he made a wreck of his talents and his success. He had what so many parents today covet for their own children. I just want them to be more than the other kids. I just want them to be ahead. I want them to have every opportunity. I want them to be successful. But Samson had all of those things. And if we are going to equate talent and success with blessing, we are walking into 
great potential disappointment. That's why we need to pray about our role and examine our priorities as parents. Because it is those moral and spiritual decisions that they make that will either bless them or ruin them. And without God's help, our priorities just won't be there. We will have our focus in a different place. Samson, we know, gave himself to prostitutes and women who despised Israel's God. And because of that, his life stands as a reminder of what happens when someone has great talent, incredible strength, incredible potential for success, and having tasted a measure of that success. And yet, through his own inner life and the weakness that he possessed on the inside, he would ruin those natural gifts. He would ruin the, uh, the career that was set before him. His life stands as a reminder of the danger of pinning your hopes for a child's blessing on talent and success. Do your priorities as a parent reflect what your child's greatest needs really are? When you look at where you invest your time and your energy, your words and your actions, your schedule and what, what gets you up in the morning, does it reflect the spiritual and the moral challenges that your child will face in this life? Or, or is your priority in a different place? Are you giving yourself to a different challenge? Pinning your hopes on a different place for your blessing? Given urgency about the spiritual battle you're preparing them for? Uh, do you pray about how you need to change as a parent and not just how they need to change as your child? We need to pray about our parenting because our child's success isn't enough. We also need to pray about our parenting because our child's happiness isn't enough. Like the baby crawlathon, if you make your child's happiness your number one, make that the race that you are going to commit yourself to, you are inviting potential great difficulty. Because short-term happiness can end in long-term misery. We need to pray for our parenting because our child's happiness isn't enough. Now, I feel with Samson we get what I think every parent would benefit from. We get this little snippet of, of how the life begins, but as we look at this prayer, we, can, we already know the rest of the story. We know the consequences before we've even seen uh, at, at any level of detail the the, the starting point. And so often we don't get that, right? We make decisions as parents. We decide what we're going to focus on and we're, what we're not. We're gonna, we decide how we're going to respond to our children's behavior when they're young. And we're, we, we make decisions about how we're going to relate to their moral formation, their spiritual formation. But we don't get to see how that's all going to turn out, whether it makes any difference. But with Samson, we do. We get the full picture of all of those things. 
The first glimpse we get of Samson as a young adult is in the beginning of chapter 14. He heads to Timnah, which is a Philistine town. And even as you're reading that, right away you're thinking, wait a second, this is Israel's deliverer. He's the one who is holy, the Nazarite, sanctified and set apart for the Lord. What's he doing heading to this uncircumcised town? What's he doing there? Why would he be wandering in that direction? Then in verse 2, we get a window into his relationship with his parents. It says, Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Marrying someone who's not committed to the Lord was forbidden to the Israelites. That was, like, that was just one of the basics. They, they knew all about that. And in their day, it was more common for the parents to arrange the marriage, look for a relationship that was going to be safe and a good match, and, and yet here there is none of this. Samson, the golden child, is in control. Samson doesn't even feel the need to plead with his father. It's a demand, right? Get her for me. Do it. And I feel like I've, I've heard and experienced versions of this story in my own life, in my own family. It, I experienced them, thankfully, young. Uh, I experienced them uh, at the, with a, a child sitting in the high chair demanding this one, not that one. I experienced them in the supermarket checkout lane where I want that candy, get it for me. I want this toy, not that one. And no matter, having heard the scriptures and knowing how God calls us to raise our children, you can't help but hear that voice in your head saying, well, it's just a cup, it doesn't matter which one it is. It's just a toy. It's just a candy. It's just... And then you realize, but it's not. It's not just a cup. It's not just a toy. It's not just a candy. It's a battle for the moral center of a child. It's their taste of self-control or lack of self-control. Every time you respond to a child's mind, mine is a rehearsal for adulthood. You set a tone or expectation for the child's self-control into adulthood or their lack of self-control, their healthy submission to authority or their rejection of authority and determination to be their own boss. And the time to set that tone is when your child is young. Because we know that by the time a child reaches teen years and into adulthood, the patterns have largely been set. The, the values have been formed. The, the understanding of who's in control and how am I going to live my life has largely been shaped. The next verse presents for me what feels like another familiar scene. How are Samson's parents going to respond to this 
demand from their son. It's a demand that is both rude and sinful. It's evil in the eyes of the Lord, and it is a disrespect and rejection of their parental authority. How are they going to respond to that? In verse 3, they respond to that with some bargaining. Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take away a wife from these uncircumcised Philistines? They're negotiating with him. And Samson responds probably the way he has responded to their negotiation a thousand times since the high chair. He says, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. And you can see how it would have happened. Samson was the golden child. He was the sunshine to his parents' lives. And so when he said mine, they just wanted to say yes. Couldn't bring themselves to say no. It was just too difficult. It was easier to bargain with them. It was easier to make it feel like it's his idea come up with a workaround to avoid the conflict, to avoid the just difficult thing of having to disappoint the golden child. But the end result was that he never learned to live with no. With enough determination, he knew he could always get his way. And it became his spiritual downfall. Do you negotiate with your children? Do you look for workarounds to avoid conflict? Do you have the courage to say no when the answer really is no? Do you bargain with them because you're afraid of expressing your authority? Here's one. Do you use threats because it's, more, it's a lot more easier than following through? We have an opportunity, when a child is young, to seek to shape and influence that moral compass, their response to authority, their relationship with self-control. And if you make your child's short-term happiness your goal, it will often end, as it did with Samson, in long-term misery. Probably the most disturbing consequence of Samson's spiritual complacency is in Judges 16.20. Delilah has found out the secret of his strength. And she cuts his hair, has it shaved off, and the verse says, and he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But listen for it. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. God had given him one opportunity after another, after another, but eventually God gives us what we want. If, if we want to reject him and turn our backs on him, at a certain point, he withdraws and gives us the master that we want. Samson ignored the Lord for so long, he didn't even know when the Lord had left him. Will your child know when the Lord has withdrawn his grace? Is, is God so peripheral in your family that if your child moved out and moved on and God was no longer a part of the picture, that they wouldn't really notice it? Apart from 
a little bit of time on a Sunday morning, it just they could just carry on as usual and wouldn't even really notice a difference. Is that the place that you're in? Ironically, when a parent makes their child's happiness their primary goal, their child seldom ends up happy. With Samson, as the Lord took his power from him, he was ruined. You know that he was arrested by the Philistines. He was humiliated by them. Uh, he was a, a man who died in captivity with that, that gruesome scene with his eyes being gouged out. And his life stands as a warning of what's at stake in our parenting. And because of him, I want to encourage you to pray Manoah's prayer. I want to encourage you to pray not just for your child, and we all want to pray for our child, but to pray for yourself as a parent. To pray that you would make the Bible's priorities for your parenting your priorities. To pray that you would seek God's will for your parent. For your, for your parenting, and that starts with the ABCs of the, the Scripture's teaching in that area. And to pray that God would give you the patience and the grace and the consistency that your child needs. It takes strength. It takes God's help. It takes God's eyes. And that comes to us as we seek Him in prayer. We also need to say, though, that the reality is that all of us fall short of what the Scripture teaches. We're the ones, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you, we are the ones who admit to ourselves and to God, we missed the mark. We fell short. We, we sin. And we would be helpless and hopeless without the grace of Jesus Christ. And so there are no perfect parents. There is only a perfect God. And we cling to him and we look to him. We call upon him for grace. Even if we've done all that God's word says, even if we have been perfectly faithful to his teaching and his laws, we believe that parenting is by grace and not by law. We don't say to God, I'll do this for you so that you give me this as a child. That's not the bargain. We say, God has given me everything as a free gift. And of course, I, I give myself to him and I want to be as faithful to my child and to my Lord as I possibly can. But it's by grace. I, I trust him with the results. I, I, God, doesn't, God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't, I, I don't control what happens. I don't rule the circumstances. I give that into his hands. We need to say that at least, if, at least because when we look back to the garden, we see Adam and Eve. We see two people who had a perfect parent. They knew only his perfect love, only his perfect holiness and righteousness. And they still chose to turn their backs on him and sin. And so we cling to the grace of God. And we cling to a God knowing that we need him and we need to entrust our children to him. Thankfully, Jesus teaches us how to wait on those who do what Adam and Eve did, do what Samson did in the story of the prodigal son. 
Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, that son who demanded his inheritance and treated his father like he was already dead. The son who squandered his money and his opportunities and brought shame on the family. When that son finally came to repentance and started on his way home, Jesus says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. In case you didn't know, that kind of love and grace to someone who has caused you that kind of pain does not come naturally from the heart of a man. That's something that only God gives. That's why I'm encouraging you to pray for you as a parent as much or more as for your children. In ourselves, we would either give up waiting or greet our straying children with probation and condemnation. But we know that this is the grace of God that he has offered to us. We know that we are the children who have turned our backs on God and run away from him. And while it felt like we were taking steps back to him, while it felt like we were repenting and turning around and coming back to him, Jesus reminds us, while we were still a long way off, the Father came to us. The Father came running. He came with arms outstretched and received us and forgave us and blessed us with a grace that we know none of us deserved. And so we call upon him that we might reflect on the Father that he has been to us and so somehow having experienced and tasted of a grace and a love that we still can't fully understand, that we might express that same to our own children when they return to us in repentance. Let's look to God for that grace and call upon him as we join together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just confess before you that we often pray about our children as if they're the ones that have to change and only them. But the reality is that our children need more from us as parents. We don't want to wake up when it's too late and find out that we'd run the wrong race. To realize that we'd sacrificed for the wrong things. So Father, open our eyes to the reality. Give us a help in getting the basics of your words teaching on parenting down. Forgive us for thinking that we have blessed our children by just providing for them materially or investing in their talents and success. Help us to prepare them for the moral and spiritual challenges that will come. And help us to reflect your heart as a parent. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.